Hello, and welcome to Global Crossings, a podcast produced by the Global Leadership Institute at Boston College. Thank you for joining us today for a discussion about the European Union, Ireland, and global affairs as part of our Ireland at Boston College's Leadership Fireside Chat series. In today's episode, Dr. Robert Morrow, Director of the Global Leadership Institute, and His Excellency Dan Mulhall, Ambassador for Ireland, reflect on the transatlantic relationship through the pandemic and into the future. During this discussion, the Ambassador will discuss the ways in which Ireland is shaping EU-US relationships during the crisis. The Ambassador will also discuss the dynamic and emerging Atlantic future. Enjoy the podcast as we join in the midst of opening remarks by Leisha Moore, Consul General of Ireland to New England. Ireland, many business leaders have spoken at Boston College and, and earlier this year um, the Irish Consulate was really pleased to, to work with the Global Leadership Institute at Boston College to launch this fireside uh, chat Atlantic uh, dialogue, uh, transatlantic dialogue series and we actually uh, launched it with Ambassador Mulhall back in February. Uh, I mean I had to go and I had to check the date of when it was because it seemed like it was at least a year ago but it was only February. Um, but uh, when Bob um, suggested the idea of having a virtual one of these series, I really jumped at the chance because even though it was only in February that we had the last one, I mean, the context has changed so so utterly since then. So it's, it's really great to have um, the ambassador back with us to, to talk about how pandemic um, might have changed the conversations that we're having. Um, the, the Fireside Chat series is designed to have uh, a series of political and business leaders from Ireland and from the US talk ab- about the transatlantic relationship and a number of themes such as Ireland as a transatlantic bridge, Ireland's place you know, at the heart of the EU and also a place that is very deep links with the US, explore that, that conversation, which I think um, you know, the pandemic is going to have some interesting implications for that, but I think we're, we're all just starting to, to, um, to imagine what these might be. Um, The Fireside Chat series then also talks about other important areas of the Ireland-US relationship, such as, you know, the US's the U.S.'s role in um, and its important contribution to peace and reconciliation on the island of Ar- island of Ireland, and then also, I guess, um, Ireland's global role. So, so it's just very, very uh, useful for us to have this virtual conversation. Uh, one of the areas that we have been working hard on since the pandemic and since it has changed the way we work so utterly, as with many organisations, is to try and stay connected with our communities here, and indeed to build new connections with people and we've been doing that like a lot of people we've been doing that in a in a virtual way um so and and i guess you know it's as the ambassador often says diplomacy is a face-to-face business and and virtual events do uh, pose their own challenges but one of the things i was really heartened to see when i was talking with bob about this was that the audience that we've attracted for this event is um we've always we've always enjoyed a good audience for these events in the boston area but now it's it's a a kind of a truly global audience i understand there are people tuned in from across the us from both sides of the atlantic and from the rest of europe too so uh, i mean i would be very reluctant to say that there are, are silver linings to a pandemic but there are some some good things that can come out of it and I hope that you know that uh, the fact that we are able to um, connect with a wider audience on this important subject is is a positive that we can take from this and I really look forward to this conversation today and future conversations in the transatlantic fireside chat series and whether these take place in a virtual way or or in person we will have to reflect I think on how we maintain that connection with the global audience but for now um, thank you very much for inviting me to say a few words Bob and I look forward to your conversation with the ambassador thank you uh, thank you as ever Alicia for your uh, support and, and you're right um, this is the second in an ongoing series of uh, transatlantic uh, fireside chats where uh, we try to engage the US EU relationship um, through the lens of Ireland and in fact we did kick off this series with the ambassador um, it would be unusual to have a speaker return so quickly um, after a, an earlier discussion, but so much has changed uh, since we last met in, in February. In fact, when we, when we held the last event here at Boston College, it was only a few days before uh, lockdowns indeed came to um, Chestnut Hill and the students had uh, left. Uh, students still remain off campus. Um, campus is a little bit, uh, I can report, a little bit like the Mary Celeste. Everything was exactly as we left it, um, only with a little bit of dust on it now at this point as we begin slowly to open up. And I do hope our audience has remained um, safe and well um, throughout this transition. 
to uh, the digital life. I myself have um, brought in my own uh, haircut regime, which is uh, taking the form of a, of a simple razor. Um, so I, I plan on uh, continuing that, I think. But um, it's my pleasure to um, introduce the ambassador. Um, and uh, before we begin, I will take about a half an hour, um, 35 minutes with the ambassador and some questions that we've prepared, and then we'll open it up um, for a Q&A. If you've been to any of our fireside chats at Boston College, whether in the Cray Research Library or at Conley House, you know that we encourage audience participation. And I would encourage you to use the question and answer box and we'll relay your question uh, to the ambassador and hopefully get a, a decent answer. Um, ambassador, thank you uh, for participating um, in this discussion. Thank you to the Department of Foreign Affairs uh, for their support of uh, this uh, dialogue. Um, Ambassador, the last time we spoke, uh, you revealed to the audience um, that uh, you're, you, you've been a, a Kansas City Chiefs fan in, in a way, and you had this deep affiliation uh, with the organization. Um, you've also traveled quite extensively throughout the United States. Um, you're, you're known famously for um, being on the road and engaging with uh, people from, from Massachusetts uh, to Choctaw Nation to, to California. How are you finding the transition to digital diplomacy? What are some of the things that uh, you've enjoyed about it? And, and what are some of the challenges that you've faced as you've moved online? Well, I've been in this business now for 42 years. And uh, it is it's the strangest time in my career um, by a long way. Um, I, I came home from the embassy on the um, 13th of March. And I haven't been to the embassy since then. I have um, been working from home um, using Zoom and all the various technological resources, which happily, which, you know, it's a blessing that we have those resources because otherwise we, I don't know what we would do. Um, and I've been, I've, I've been kept really very busy and, and I, I, um, I, I find I work, I work a full day. Um, I've been working full days for the last uh, three months. So the nature of the work has, has changed. Um, uh, in the beginning, it was focused largely on the consular function of trying to encourage people to who are here on a short-term basis to go home, because my view was that, and the view of our government was that uh, you should be during a pandemic, you should be where you live, not where you're visiting. And you know, we had to encourage people to go home, and most Irish people have taken our advice. And happily, there are still flights. Uh, to Dublin from Boston, New York, and Chicago. So nobody is stranded here in the United States uh, and can't get home. Irish people can still get home if they need to and so on. So so that was the first part of it. The second part was the welfare part where we we realized very quickly that, that there were a lot of Irish people here uh, who lost their jobs in the um, construction sector and in the hospitality industry. And we um, partnered with... Um, organizations like Rian in, in Boston and also with some of the Irish centers in New York and Chicago and in San Francisco uh, to sort of help them to provide some, you know, minimal but provide essential welfare support for, for Irish people who were in dire straits because of the economic impact impact on their jobs of, of, of the pandemic. So, and then the third phase, which, you know, been going on now for a few months, has been trying to do our work, all of our work, or as much as we can do remotely. So I've done many, many Zooms, and there are some advantages. And for example, um, I've done town halls with all of our consulates now. And the beauty of it is that, for example, I did Atlanta a couple of weeks ago. And while it was hosted by the consulate in Atlanta, we had people from five Southeastern states on, on the call, people from North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, and Tennessee. Now, that would not be possible in any room in any of those states to have people from five different states, all of whom had a connection with Ireland. So there is a chance to, 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 to reach wider audiences. Uh, on, on Friday, for example, we did a Bloomsday Yates Day. And normally we would have done that at the embassy in our garden, and we would have had readings and um, music from from Blisses and uh, music connected with WB Yeats uh, songs um, and readings. Uh, and we would normally have 100, maybe 120 people here. 
for those events. Uh, on, on, on Friday, we had a close to 500 people were tuned in to our Yates Day Bloomsday celebration. So there are some advantages, but bottom line is that diplomacy is a face-to-face -face business and losing that face-to-face -face dimension is a big loss which cannot really be replaced. Um, and for example, let me just give you one example. Over the last three months, I've kept in contact with a lot of the people that I met over the last two and a half years. I've had conversations with them and, and it's, been, it's been very, very useful indeed to keep tabs on how people are thinking about the current situation and, and the way forward for all of us. Um, but what I'm missing are the casual encounters. So over the last three months, I would have met many, many people. And some of those would have become very worthwhile contacts, very worthwhile people for me to get to know and to talk to and to exchange views with. I'm not getting that at the moment. And that is one of the big losses, I think, for diplomats, not being able to have casual encounters that you would have in the normal course of your life in the pre-pandemic world. Yeah, the, um, as, as everyone will know, coming here to Boston College, that um, the, the, the soft interaction you have with people, um, the ability to meet with people uh, and have that informal conversations, it, it's a big part of how um, things get done and it is a, a bit of a loss. But there has been a big push, as you, you pointed out, uh, for digital diplomacy over the past number of years and it's accelerated obviously since um, COVID has uh, increased the lockdowns. Um, it was, a lot has changed in Ireland uh, recently, and even this morning, um, there have been some updates in, in the, the formation of government. Um, Ambassador, do you have any updates that you can give us beyond um, maybe some of the, the headlines that we've seen about a, a program for government being issued? Well, the program for government was agreed uh, this morning in Dublin between the three party leaders. It will now go to the uh, membership of the three parties for approval. And the, the aim I see is to uh, have the election of a new Taoiseach on either the 26th or the 29th of June. So we're getting pretty close to uh, the formation of a new government now, probably within the next uh, two, uh, two weeks or so, which is a good thing because clearly um, the election took place in, in February and uh, we've had a lot of things have happened in the world and in Ireland since then. And I think there's a feeling that a new government is required in order to have a sufficient majority in parliament to be able to do the things that need to be done to um, engineer our national economic recovery and to deal with the ongoing um, public health uh, situation. Now, that's gone into a very positive phase at the moment in that yesterday we had one death and nine new cases, so a very small number of cases now. And the last few weeks have been similarly small numbers of cases have been reported and relatively small numbers of deaths. So um, if from that point of view and the economy is, is gradually reopening, the next phase of the reopening will be on the 29th of June uh, when people will be able to travel anywhere in the country. Well, at the moment, you're restricted to your own county, which means you can probably travel 30, 50, maybe even up to 100 miles if you're in a, one of the big counties but not beyond your own county, whereas from, from the 29th, it will be possible for people to travel anywhere in the country. So that will help our, our tourism industry, which of course won't really be able to benefit from the 2 million American tourists who visited Ireland last year, but hopefully um, domestic tourism will, will make up for some of that um, loss. Um, so um, economically, it's very challenging for us, uh, but we have a lot of strengths. And moving forward, I'm confident that we will be able to emerge from this crisis in the way we emerged from the last crisis 10 years ago. Remember, we have a folk memory in Ireland of, of economic decline and revival. And therefore, I think that that will help us to deal with the adversities that currently affect us on the economic side. Ambassador, do you anticipate any uh, large policy changes or any policy changes related to, to COVID or uh, practices when, when the new government's brought in? Well, I, I, it's, I haven't had a chance. It's the, the, the program for government is 139 pages. I only saw it this morning. So I, I sort of, I, I only skimmed it really and looked at the, the foreign affairs elements of it. Um, clearly there will be uh, policy changes and the major one will probably be a, 
a bigger emphasis on on um, green uh, on a green new deal on a on green policies because um the green party are in government but the other two parties as well i think uh have come around to the view that that um that um combating climate change and and um protecting our our environment needs to be prioritized so i think that's that was something that was that was that was a consensus but obviously the greens being in government um means that 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 particular dimension has has uh has been given um priority um another issue will be housing as you may know uh, housing was a big issue in the the last um, in the election in, in february when a lot of people uh, felt that um you know a rich country like ours um ought to be able to provide uh, more housing for for our people and, and that uh, obviously so i think there'll be a focus on that uh, the health system of course you know is always a, a major issue in ireland as it is in every country in the world really but the COVID pandemic has has placed um, uh, even greater emphasis on on the importance. Uh, it has stressed again, you know, the vital importance of the, um, the health of our health sector, and I think that will that will that will receive uh, due priority in the uh, in, in the years ahead. But I think the main I think the main thrust of uh, our um, of the government's efforts over the next few years will be engineering and economic recovery. That gets us back to where somewhere close to where we were um, when this pandemic um, hit us in um, the early months of uh, this year. It's a question that's uh, come in from uh, one of the viewers. is a it's a it's a smart question, um, and it's a, it's about the the program for government and the agreement between the parties. And um, in the the questioner wants to to know, you know what kind of challenges do you anticipate uh, in the leadership roles. Um, of of the of the political leaders from their parties um, of Leo Varadkar and, and Michal Martin as the the Taoiseach rotates. This is quite an unusual thing, I think, um, especially for the American audience to uh, get their head around um, that their the head of government is suggested that it will, that it will rotate. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's um, it, it's a new thing for Ireland as well. Obviously, it's a uh, it doesn't happen. Um, uh, in many places, I suppose I, I don't I don't recall many examples of it uh, globally. Um, but I suppose it's a reflection of what happened in the election, whereby the two, you know, the three parties in government now, and two of them in the last election got you know a very similar number of seats. Um, so I guess that that was bound to raise the issue of a rotating T-shirt. It was considered in the past, but at that time, the, the, uh, the gap between the bigger party and the smaller party in, in government was much greater. And this time around, the electorate threw up a situation where the two parties had very similar number of seats, and therefore that meant that the question of rotation uh, had, to be, um, had to be on the agenda, and it seems to have been agreed between the parties. Um, so I'm a public servant, and I'm used to working with whoever is Taoiseach, whoever is minister. So I've worked with, since 1978, I've worked with every government since that time, and I've worked with every Taoiseach. And in our, in our system, a bit like yours, you know, the Taoiseach is the Taoiseach. And whoever occupies that role will be given the full and undivided support of the entire system. So, um, you know, I've seen changes of, of Taoiseach over the years, many, many times, sometimes, you know, in, in short order. I mean, not all governments in the past have lasted the full uh, five years. This one, I think, probably will because the parties are committed to, to the long haul. And this um, rotating Taoiseach implies that they're going to do uh, the full term. So I, I don't um, I don't see any for me at least and for for the civil service the public service I can, I can remember times when you know you you know before an election you had a Taoiseach in the government and you talked about the Taoiseach in the government and after the election with the new Taoiseach you just talked about Taoiseach in government but you had different governments and different Taoiseach in mind so I I I I think it's it's up to the personnel involved 
uh, between them to make it work. But for the for the system, for the for our for our government system, I I think people, our system is such that that uh, whoever is Taoiseach of the day uh, commands the loyalty and the support and the dedication of our entire public service. We don't have the politicized public service that you have. So you don't have a, a clear out of people when a new administration comes in. So, you know, we're used to being um, in a sort of a, a professional career long um, public service um, role. And therefore we're used to um, the personnel and the composition of government changing from time to time. So I don't, I don't see a, I don't see a major um, problem with this this new uh, idea, although it is novel. But I don't think it's a, I don't think it will pose a major problem for our system. Well, thanks, Ambassador. A lot has been changing um, pretty rapidly, and there's a lot of novel um, experiences of, of of late. And it's going to be a very interesting uh, government to to study um, over the coming years, uh, how it unfolds and how it works. Um, and how it responds to uh, the unfolding COVID crisis um, and other issues. Um, other areas um, in Europe uh, and the European Union itself has been evolving quite rapidly. Um, recently, um, Christine Lagarde uh, from the ECB uh, deployed the Pandemic Emergency Purchasing Program um, that, that made it more made it easier for Southern um, European Union states to um, sell their debt. Um, Earth, the, the presidency, the president of the commission uh, put forward a multi-annual financial framework uh, worth $750 billion. And in total, it seems that the European Union has put close to uh, $1.85 trillion um, into its uh, pandemic uh, response. And this surprised a lot of people. It, it, um, it required German and French agreement um, to, to put forward these proposals. Uh, yet, not all member states are um, in total agreement. There are the so-called frugal four, Austria, Sweden, Denmark, and the Netherlands, um, which have expressed reservations about some aspects of these programs. Uh, the German Supreme Court recently ruled uh, the ECB bond buying program was unconstitutional. I mean, how is Ireland positioning it itself um, in this internal discussion within the European Union? Where does Ireland fit on the, on the spectrum of uh, between those states that are favoring large amounts of um, EU intervention uh, in the form of grants, or uh, are they more closely aligned right now with, with the so-called frugal flip four? Well, we, um, when this issue first, remember one of the issues, one of the, the, um, the realities is that uh, when this, crisis first erupted. Um, perhaps the EU might have been a little bit slow out of the blocks, but that's because public health is a, a national competence. And the EU role in public health is purely, uh, you know, comparing um, ex experience. There's no, there's no EU competence. But very quickly, uh, the realization dawned that this was not just a public health crisis, it was also an economic crisis par excellence. And the Commission and the EU generally has kicked into gear in a very impressive way. And I also have been impressed by what's happened. I mean, you know, we remember that the expenditure you're talking about here, over $2 trillion, that's just the EU component. That's on top of the national efforts that have been made by every member state. Ireland has spent quite a significant amount of money in every country. All of EU member states have put huge amounts of money into combating the economic and public health effects of, of the COVID crisis. So we have been, but when, when this thing first broke, there was a proposal to have euro bonds. Now, the idea of euro bonds um, spoke to some of the member states. But we were ones, we actually put our names behind that idea. Now, it's moved on since then. Um, and now we have this proposal for the 750 billion uh, to be added to the, uh, the um, multi-annual financial framework. So the total amount to be deployed by the EU will be over $2 trillion, over 2 trillion euros actually. So it'll be, it'll be well over 
two trillion dollars. Um, so we're so so we're supportive. We we believe that in a situation like this, EU solidarity is essential, and that the EU has to um, demonstrate its capacity to deal with issues that are that are that are affecting all of its member states. In my experience, the EU is very good in responding to a crisis. For example, the economic and financial crisis of 10 years ago, um, you know, gave rise to the fiscal treaty, which was, which was very quickly negotiated and approved. Uh, and, you know, we did things that would have been unthinkable two, three, five years before. And likewise, this time around, we're doing things that maybe would have been regarded as, as um, impossible only a few years ago, because we the, the union is reacting to the severity and the immediacy of the challenge we face. It, it, that is, uh, that's, this is a good point. Um, it did take a little bit of time for the European Union to, to um, get moving, as you, as you pointed out, because it's a health, public health crisis. Uh, but once it did start um, uh, its programs, they, they were quite effective. Um, a key figure in um, some of these discussions has been the EU Trade Commissioner, Phil Hogan. Um, at one point during the conversations, and, and it's a continued ongoing conversation, um, even here in the United States, is about the critical importance of uh, supply chains. Um, and many governmental leaders around the world have called for uh, returning supply chains to a, a national structure. Um, and this resulted from some of the, the difficulty in, in acquiring PPE and some other uh, medications during the early days of um, the COVID crisis. Uh, Phil Hogren um, kind of interestingly suggested that autonomy really wouldn't work um, in the uh, supply chain issue. Um, he, he, he favors uh, resiliency. He's also uh, put forward a transatlantic agenda for recovery um, in his conversations with the United States on a trade deal, um, which would see the EU and US and their kind of tit for tat around issues like the Boeing subsidies and the Airbus um, subsidies. Um, is there something particularly Irish in the way um, the commissioner is approaching his work in, in Europe and, and those discussions with the, the United States or, or has you know, the commissioner's role evolved um, it, it, to represent all of the European Union? Um, I mean, the fundamental point to make is that the commissioner is the European Union's trade commissioner. So the fact that he's Irish is a secondary uh, significance. But in America, that can be a useful um, dimension, because I think that it's fair to say that an Irish commissioner may be better able to connect with uh, U.S. Uh, counterparts and maybe uh, commissioners from other parts of Europe that might not be have such a proximity to the United States in terms of culture and the way we and language and the way we do things. We tend to we tend to engage pretty comfortably together, Irish and Americans. Um, so that 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 has been a that's been an asset, and, and it's unfortunate the commissioner was here in, in in January. I think made a very good impression. Um, you know, I think people had had maybe negative attitudes because the commissioner prior to that was was commissioner for agriculture and that's a particularly sticky wicket as you know from the point of view of US uh, EU relations so perhaps American attitudes towards the commissioner might have been a little bit negative on because of the agricultural portfolio that he previously had but I I felt on this occasion I had a I, I had a dinner for him here which I do which I invited senior people and and I I felt he got on he engaged very well with them and I was I was confident that he, he, he was due to come back again in March for St. Patrick's Day, and I was confident that that would add to the um, to his um, you know uh, personal engagement with the key figures here in a positive way. But unfortunately, that that didn't happen, so it's had to revert to a virtual um, negotiation since then. So I think the commissioner does bring um, certain skills uh, to bear on, on his job. I mean, you know, Irish people are are, are um, I think you know the commissioner when he was in Irish politics was known as a you know a pragmatist, a deal maker, and so on. And I think those are the kind of skills that you need. Just to say that that 
I've been saying all along for the last two and a half years that it's a travesty that the EU and the US are bogged down in this tit for tat uh, situation of, um, you know, tariffs imposed on uh, imports of steel and, and, and aluminum into the US, uh, retaliatory tariffs imposed by the EU, tariffs now imposed last year um, connected with the Airbus dispute. Um, the Boeing dispute will undoubtedly um, enable the EU to impose tariffs on the US sometime this summer. And, you know, an escalation would be disastrous in my view, especially at this time. So, so my own view all along has been, it's ridiculous that, that two partners as close and as important to each other as EU and the US should be squabbling over um, yeah, and indulging in tit-for-tat tariffs. But I think now, in the midst of a pandemic and with the economic damage that's been done, it's a complete and utter um, travesty that we have um, this situation. And in my view, the, the pandemic and the need to emerge strongly from the pandemic, restore our economies, drive economic recovery on both sides of the Atlantic, ought to make a deal between the EU and the US on the Airbus Boeing dispute and indeed on the other issues that the virus ought to make it imperative. And I hope it will. And I think there's still time uh, this year to arrive at some kind of agreement. It won't be, um, I mean, it won't be like TTIP, it won't be comprehensive, but I think it could be a very useful driver of economic recovery and valuable to both the United States and the European Union. Um, you know, Phil Hogan, uh, the, the commissioner, is uh, not the first um, Irishman to take a lead in, in global um, trade. Uh, Peter Sutherland was the, the founding DG of, of the World Trade Organization, and indeed um, Phil Hogan is interested um, in that role. Uh, there's quite a lot of debate right now between uh, different nation states about who's to step up there. I guess my question around this is, is there something particularly uh, unique about the Irish economy and mindset uh, that encourages a, a global um, outlook on, on trade in the economy? Well, we're, we are free traders par excellence. I mean, if you look at uh, the contribution of exports and trade generally to our GDP, it's off the scale. It's up there with sort of places like Hong Kong and Singapore. In other words, we're one of the most open economies in the world. And I mean, the very fact that with a population of, of 5 million, we um, are, our trade with the US, two-way trade is $140 billion. So that shows you just how, how open our economy is and how, how, how dependent we are on uh, exports. And that's why we have benefited greatly from the opening up of the global economy over the past 30 years. And we would be serious victims if the global economy were to close down or were to, 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 to um, if it's, um, if, if, if the free flow of trade and investment uh, was to be curtailed in some way, that would be a particular um, challenge for Ireland. And it's one that we, we want to avoid. And I think we will continue to be, to be staunch advocates for free trade globally. And I think our, our commissioner, those who are appointed to the European Commission from Ireland, obviously they serve the European Union, but they come from, each one of them comes from a different country and they bring some of the, you know, the mindset of that country to the table in Brussels and to the work they do on behalf of the European Union. And that's the way it should be, because the union is a union of, of member states. And therefore, this is why it's important that each country should have a commissioner because they can bring particular skill sets from that particular country to bear on the European agenda. And that's what our commissioners do, have done over the last uh, um, 45 years, 47 years of our membership. You know, our commissioners have always played significant roles within the commission because they are both committed to the European uh, goals and European um, agenda, but also bring certain Irish skills to the table as well. Uh, just as a reminder to uh, those attending the, the webinar, we, uh, we are allowing for questions and answers, and so I would encourage you to submit your questions either by the, the chat function or the Q&A function 
uh, and we'll get them over to the ambassador. Um, ambassador, one of the attendees has anticipated uh, my next series of questions um, on Brexit and um, where that's heading. Um, without any irony, I think I can say that Brexit has become even more complicated since uh, the COVID crisis. Both uh, the chief negotiators, uh, Michel Barnier and David Frost fell ill uh, in March, delaying some of the uh, discussions. Uh, there's a new um, head of uh, trade negotiations in the UK, uh, Liz Truss, who's negotiating a number of different uh, agreements um, at the same time. There are new predictions about the impact of, of Brexit on um, the UK economy. Um, some vary uh, as much as that the, the GDP could contract between three and close to 20%, uh, depending on the terms in which uh, the UK leaves um, the EU. Fishing has become a sticking point um, again uh, in these discussions, um, as well as um, the presence of an EU office um, in Belfast uh, to kind of regulate the, the, and inspect uh, on the single market um, standards. Uh, I mean, the big question is, uh, um, you know, and, and from one of our, our viewers here is, I mean, is a deal possible at this point, do you think, or has have things just become so complicated um, that the that the, the conversations are are bound to to break down? <laughs> no, no, I never, I never ever um, resign myself to failure. I've I've been around European negotiating tables and European councils and foreign ministers um, meetings for more years than I care to remember. And the EU has, a, a, has an incredible capacity to find compromises, even when it looks impossible. And I've been there many, many times when you thought there's no way we can reach agreement here. Typically that happens when it comes to the financial perspectives. Every five or seven years is this huge debate that goes on for, for years about who gets what and who pays what and who pays what into the budget and who gets what out of it. And it's very complicated and it always looks to be headed for the rocks and it always finds a solution, a compromise. And the same is true when it came to the Lisbon Treaty and all of that. I remember at times it looked like we could never reach agreement. There were late night meetings and, and grandstanding and so on by different countries, but eventually uh, agreement is found. So on this occasion, I'm not prepared to give up on on the possibility of agreement. I accept that it looks it doesn't look great at the moment. The atmosphere is not is not as good as it ought to be. But let me just break this down a little bit, right? Um, the withdrawal agreement has been concluded. Uh, a protocol on, on Northern Ireland has been concluded, and now there are negotiations on the future relationship between the UK and the European Union. We earnestly hope that those negotiations will lead to the UK developing a close economic partnership with the European Union. But that depends on the UK's own willingness to, to do that. I mean, fundamentally, um, the Brexit project is a political project. I've never come across any economists who thought that this could be beneficial to the UK to leave the European Union, leave the most advanced um, free trade and economic zone in the world and go into a kind of a, a different mode of, of connecting with its nearest neighbors and with the rest of the world. So it's a political project. Um, and therefore, it requires political will on the part of the UK government to want to reach agreement with the European Union. If that will is there, certainly there on the European side, I'm, I'm, I'm still convinced that an agreement can be reached now. It, it'll probably be at the 11th hour, at, at the 58th minute or something like that, at the 11th hour, um, sometime um, in the back end, at the back end of this year. But I, but I believe it's still, an agreement's still attainable, but difficult and, and we need to get on with it. Um, now that we know there's not going to be an extension of the transition period, um, the urgency of getting agreements increases greatly. I think it was a mistake. Uh, not to have an extension of the transition period, but that was a decision made, again, as a political decision, and we have to live with that and we have to deal with it. Um, the second thing, of course, is that uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol applies regardless 
of the outcome of those negotiations. And um, uh, what we're down to now in the Northern Ireland Protocol is, is the Northern Ireland Protocol, the deal is, fundamentally, it's an open border on the island of Ireland. And in order to protect the single market, some kind of controls, sufficient controls on customs movements of goods between Britain and Northern Ireland need to be, uh, need to be introduced. And, and those, those arrangements have yet to be fleshed out. And we have to arrive at a situation where we have a series of, of, of checks that are um, acceptable to the UK, but also that give the European Union and its member states sufficient confidence that the open border on the island of Ireland will not be used to undermine the integrity of the single market. And again, that's something that, that, that needs to be done. I think it will be done. Uh, it's less complicated, obviously, than the complications that arise in the overall future economic partnership between the UK and the European Union. That negotiation is complicated and many faceted. The one on Northern Ireland, we're down to really finding an acceptable set of, of arrangements that can satisfy the UK on the one hand and the European Union on the other. Uh, is Ireland satisfied that the European Union is doing all it can to defend Ireland's interests um, during this negotiation? Short answer is yes. I think um, we, we remain in very close contact with uh, Michel Barnier and his negotiating team. Um, we have a special um, interest in and recognized by the EU in the Northern Ireland uh, discussions in particular. Uh, so I think you can see over the last um, three years that the EU in these negotiations has stood four square behind Ireland. And I don't see any evidence that that situation is going to change anytime soon. Um, so I want to take a few minutes and turn to the relationship between the European Union and the United States and, and, and the role that Ireland is um, playing uh, in, the, in those relationships and in those conversations. Um, I mean, firstly, I wonder if you can give us an update on some of the relationships that have developed um, to combat uh, COVID um, and, and, and how the, the two blocks are working together to partner on this. Well, I mean, look, the relationship between the EU and the US has become complicated over the last um, few years. Part of that has to do with NATO and doesn't involve us directly. Another part has to do with um, the trade tensions that we've already mentioned. And then thirdly, there is the, the sort of the tensions that have arisen as a result of the US um, not being as fully committed as we would like to the, to, to the multilateral frameworks that are out there. So all of those things have, have cast a certain shadow across the EU-US relationship. Uh, but everyone in Europe recognizes the huge importance of the EU-US relationship. We all recognize that the interests we have in common are so vast and so deep that there's no, there's no, there's no substituting for them. And therefore, there is a kind of an imperative for the two sides to come together and to find ways of, of working together to, to meet the challenges of today and tomorrow. And that's, that's the European Union's approach. I mean, the EU, as you, you probably know, has launched this international um, program um, for funding the search for, for a vaccine. Um, the US is doing its own thing on that. Um, so relations are not, as, uh, are not what they should be to be quite honest with you. And uh, my, my hope is that the, that the essential overlap, the essential harmony between the values and the interests of the United States and the European Union will come into focus more and more 
as the effects of this pandemic become clearer and as the way forward is being sought. And in my view, that way forward has to involve a close cooperation, close collaboration between the European Union and the United States. One area um, where I envision uh, that there could be useful collaboration is, is around uh, matters related to justice and, and equality. And we've all seen over the past number of weeks since uh, George Floyd's uh, murder, uh, a series of protests here in the United States, um, I think rightfully uh, pointing out that Black Lives Matter. Um, we've seen protests as well and gatherings in, across Europe. Um, indeed, there was a large one in, in Dublin and there continues to be. Um, as that conversation unfolded, the EU's Commissioner for External Affairs commented on Floyd's murder as an, an abuse of power. At the same time, many of the European states have been looking inward at, at their own um, practices around justice and, and equality. But what are some of the ways that the European Union can, can contribute to the conversation here in the United States on this issue? And in what ways can the United States contribute to the conversations in, in Europe uh, around you're progressing uh, justice and, and equality. Well, you know, um, the, the death of George Floyd has resonated around the world, especially in Europe, um, where um, in a lot of countries you've had demonstrations um, supportive of, of uh, ending discrimination and so on. Um, I think it's also encouraged countries like ours to, to look at our own situation and to make sure that we don't slip into um, situations where um, discrimination and, and uh, lack of integration might, might, um, might start to trouble our uh, public debate. Um, I mean, and I think you see, we're, we're, we're facing, we're, we're dealing with diversity, cultural, national and ethnic and racial diversity in Ireland for the first time in our history. We simply didn't have it. I mean, when I was growing up in Ireland, um, it was a very homogenous country, except for a few students in, in, you know, in Dublin who are from other parts of the world. The country was essentially homogenous. Um, racially and in every other way. Uh, and now it's very different. And, you know, you do get anecdotal uh, complaints about um, people not being accepted, uh, even though they were born here, grown up here, in so many cases, speak the Irish language um, fluently, um, are culturally completely Irish, but because they don't have the traditional appearance we associate with Ireland, um, there may be some difficulties for them in, in, in being accepted. But the positive thing in Ireland is that we, in, in the public space, there seems to be no um, scope for parties that pursue an anti-immigrant, anti, uh, or, or any kind of racist agenda, in that any, any party that's tried to pursue that sort of agenda has essentially failed abysmally and all the main parties are are signed up to to Ireland as a, a country that's increasingly diverse and are happy to um, promote that idea of diversity and not to try to um, turn the clock back in some way I think I think people in Ireland recognize that that diversity is part of the package which has allowed Ireland to be a globally successful economy to the benefit of everyone who lives in our country. And you know, we have 17% of our population now born outside the state. Every few months we have a big swearing in ceremony for, for people from other parts of the world who are becoming Irish citizens and being naturalized. And so far at least in the public debate that hasn't met with any um, meaningful uh, you know, resistance, but uh, no one can be complacent because you know, we know that that these things, these issues, can become toxic, and we have to try and make sure that we don't allow them 
to go down that road in Ireland. So at the European level, you know, there's, there's a lot of emphasis on, on equality and non-discrimination. Most European countries have a lot more, have longer experience than we have of dealing with diversity because they've had large immigrant communities within their borders for decades, generations. We're, in, you know, we're new to this business. I think so far we're dealing with it quite well. But the Taoiseach last week had a, he had a, uh, a Zoom call with representatives of different communities in Ireland uh, designed to discuss the issues that arise for them and to find ways in which we can make sure we don't go down a negative road towards uh, having any kind of anti-immigrant sentiment getting purchase in our public debate. Uh, thank you, Ambassador. We have about uh, 10 minutes left and there are a number of questions that, that have come through um, that uh, touch on some of the topics that we've talked about. And, I, and I'd just like to um, go back over them a little bit. Um, there are two different questions that came in from two different uh, attendees about um, U.S. companies located in, in Ireland. Uh, one um, attendee would like to know if the Trump administration is serious about um, seeking to remove uh, or encourage American companies currently located in Ireland to, to return to the United States. And another attendee um, would like to get a little bit of insight on Ireland and its dependence and on its economic dependence on FDI and, and whether or not Ireland has a, a good balance um, between FDI and, and, and other um, aspects of the economy. Yes, those are, those are indeed very good questions. Um, the point I've been making here uh, repeatedly over the last few months is that US companies in Ireland benefit from being in Ireland. And if they were not to be in Ireland, they would lose out significantly. And therefore the US economy would be damaged by that loss of those businesses' losses would eventually reflect negatively on the US economy as a whole. So the deal is that Ireland is a, an ideal location for US companies, foreign direct investments in Europe. And US companies, in order to be a global companies, need to have operations in different parts of the world. They probably need an operation in Europe, almost certainly, with a population of 500 million people to access. It's an obvious, it's a no-brainer. And they probably need one in Asia because of the vast populations there in many cases. Uh, but let's, let's look at the Irish uh, situation. Um, we have 750 US companies with investments in Ireland. They have access to a market of 500 million people. They also have access to markets in countries that have free trade agreements with the EU, which broadens greatly their scope. And those companies can access those markets, can service those markets from Ireland. So for example, in the pharma sector, Ireland exports about $100 billion a year in from, from pharmaceutical products. And that goes all over the world. Some of it comes back to the United States. And the benefit, the profits from that activity in Ireland are also transferred back to the United States to the benefit of the US economy. Even during the pandemic, these supply lines have remained fully open. And we calculated that last year, if you look at COVID-related products, thermometers, reagents, ventilators, scanners, about 57% of what Ireland produces in that area goes to the US. And there is no chance ever that political reasons will obstruct that supply chain. And, and we're relatively proximate to the United States. It's one flight from Dublin to, in normal times, uh, 22 US cities. So we believe that Ireland is an asset to the US and therefore 
it would be detrimental to the US economy for that investment to be removed from Ireland. And anyway, the US government couldn't do this because these are private companies and they wouldn't, they wouldn't accept uh, you know, an instruction from the US government. But if, but I, so I'm, I'm convinced that, that when this is analyzed, people in the administration now and in the future will recognize that Ireland is a plus for the US and, and not a minus. In terms of the other question about our reliance on FDI, I mean, FDI is responsible for about 7% of total employment in Ireland, but it is responsible for nearly two thirds of our exports. So I suppose the dependence on FDI is to a large extent on it's to be seen in the export uh, sector. Um, I think there's a big push in Ireland, and there has been for some years, to try to support Irish companies and get them to grow into internationally viable firms. And that's why we've seen more than 500 Irish firms establishing themselves in the United States in recent times, because it's recognized that if the companies are going to become globally viable, they have to have operations outside of Ireland in the same way that American companies need to have operations outside of the United States. Irish companies need to have operations that are global in order to be strong enough to, to continue to develop, but with their headquarters in Ireland. And that's the kind of, that'll be a big priority for us going forward. It has been for some years. We want to see uh, an appropriate mix between um, Irish-owned industry and, and uh, industry coming from FDI. But I think as a small country, we'll always need to import capital and, and expertise because we're simply too small to be able to generate sufficient capital and expertise within our own orbit. I hope there will be more um, investment flows with, the European, with our European partners from now on. And I think Brexit will result in a shift of the focus of Irish companies a little bit away from Britain. Britain will always be a major uh, export market for Ireland, but I think there will be a, an effort to, to try and deepen and intensify our trade and investment relations with our European partners. Um, Ambassador, we have about three minutes. We want to be respectful of, you, of your time. Uh, we're not going to get to all the questions uh, you see here. I, uh, I, I can see. Yeah. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, try to tackle two more questions then uh, that are okay. here. The question from one of the panel uh, attendees um, asking about um, the EU-Irish relationship around Brexit. And the panelist, uh, the attendee uh, says that uh, indeed the EU has stood uh, be behind Ireland through Brexit. Um, what does that mean for Ireland and uh, its, any possible concessions it might need to make to the European Union? Specifically, um, this attendee would like to know, will, will Ireland need to adjust its uh, corporate tax rate um, over time? Well, my own view there is that um, every EU country has a red line that it can defend and that tends to be respected. And our red line has always been corporate taxation, you know, believing that this ought to be a matter of national competence rather than EU competence. And that's the way the treaties uh, have, have um, ordained it. And without a treaty change, that, that situation will not change um, any time. Uh, and I don't, I, I don't see any circumstances in which we would agree to a treaty change that would uh, require us to, to um, um, or that would give the European Union competence in the area of corporate taxation. Because our view is that, you know, we are an island nation. We are, you know, geographically now removed even further by Brexit from our European neighbors. And we need to be able to, to provide um, companies with an incentive to operate from Ireland and our tax um, system, which we believe is open and transparent and fair, um, is part of that package. It's not the only part. We also have highly educated workforce, we're English speaking, more common law jurisdiction, all those things. So I don't, 
I don't, I don't see us. Um, I mean, you know, 10 years ago, the pressure came on at the time of the EU IMF uh, rescue for Ireland. The pressure came on for us to um, change our corporate tax regime. And we said, no, thank you. And we, we, you know, we held the line at a time when we were, when our economy was on the verge of, of serious, um, um, you know, collapse, given how, how impossible it was for us to borrow money on the international markets and the EU EMF program saved us. But we still didn't agree to, um, to abandoning our tax uh, system at that stage because it has served us well for, for decades now and we believe it continues to be to be relevant. Now, we are part of, of discussions at the OECD, uh, and we think that whatever uh, needs to be done, for example, on digital uh, taxation, it needs to be done at the OECD level so that it's genuinely global and not just confined to the European Union. Great. Uh, one final question. Um, a, a attendee and you've already addressed this a little bit. You discussed the relationship between the EU and the US not being uh, necessarily um, as communicative as it, as it ought to be. Um, this, this attendee would like to know, uh, do you see the pandemic um, affecting uh, this, the relationship in a negative way or contributing to um, a growing rift over time? I think the opposite, really, because I, I do think that both of us are in, are in both European Union and the US are in, you know, economic strife at the moment. There's no way around that. That's clear. And I think that if you look at the figures, there is no relationship in the world that comes anywhere close to the EU-US relationship economically. And if you're going to think about economic revival, to have a revival without reviving the EU-US economic relationship would be absurd to think you could do that. I mean, the, ex the, the um, trade between the EU and the US is $3 billion a day. So there's nothing, there's no way you can, you can ever neglect that trading relationship. And then there's the investment. Both of us are the, are the biggest foreign investors in our respective economies. So if you're going to think about economic recovery, you can't ignore the EU-US relationship. So I think that ultimately, now when that will be, I don't know, but I, I think when people come to evaluate the, the way forward and evaluate the relationship, they will come to the conclusion that it's, that it's vital importance cannot be replaced by anything else. There's no other, you know, I mean, what, what other option is there for trade and investment links? What other options does the United States have? China? There's clearly an issue there, which is not a matter for me to discuss, but I can see what's happening. Uh, the EU, where does the EU go to look for alternatives to the US. So there's no alternative available. So ultimately, the two sides have to find a way of resolving these relatively minor problems and redoubling our efforts to find solutions to those and to move forward uh, using the transatlantic economic relationship as a driver for economic recovery from this dreadful pandemic. Thank you, Ambassador. I want to thank all those who uh, tuned in today and um, joined us for our first uh, digital uh, fireside chat. Um, I'd like to also thank the Consul General in Boston, Leisha Moore, for her ongoing support. She's a great supporter uh, of what we do here at Boston College. So thank you, uh, Leisha. And finally, um, Ambassador, I want to thank you uh, for your time. This is now the third time we've spoken. The first two times we're in person here at Boston College, uh, and it's quite a different experience. Um, I don't have to struggle to get you out of the room um, today. We can just end the webinar whenever we please. Uh, but um, we do hope to welcome you back here to Boston College in person, and of course, all those who tuned in back to Boston College um, in person 
uh, it's I think important for us uh, to gather again, and 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 I do look forward to having for the day. conversations. So, uh, thank you, Ambassador, for your. You know, I yearn for the day. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I, I said I yearn for the day when face-to-face contact becomes possible again, because while webinars are fine, face-to-face is a lot better. Okay. <laughs> thank you very much, Ambassador. We we agree. Uh, thank please you. check out in our um, on our social media feeds and in our uh, newsletter for for upcoming events. We're working on uh, building a program that will continue through the summer and into the fall. Take care. Thank you. Thanks. Good luck. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for joining us today as we work to enhance Boston College's presence and impact in the world by building trust, community, and dialogue. Please visit our website, bc.edu, for more information on today's speaker and follow us on Twitter, at GLI at BC, or find us on LinkedIn, Global Leadership Institute at Boston College.